Fearscape Media Network. Exploring the unknown, one podcast at a time. Hi, friends. This is Kelly with Wishful Drinking and Binge Thinking, the podcast where I get just absolutely hammered and I dole out psychological advice. That's right, I am going to be more drunk than that girl you met in the bar bathroom after your karaoke set who said, you have such good stage presence, oh my god. That's right, zero preparation, multiple drinks, countless profound gems. Tune in the last Monday of every month on Fearscape Media Network. Ghosts in the Attic's Bodies in the Basements may contain graphic, violent, vulgar, or explicit content not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of Ghost in the Attic's Bodies in the Basement, listeners. I'm Anna. And I'm Lindsay. And I feel like I say this a lot lately, but it's a special episode today. It's always special when you get to hear our awesome voices. And you get to come into Rosewood Manor. We always forget to go with the shtick that we're a house. Yeah, like, like Lindsay's sister, Laura, created this fucking magnificently beautiful, logo. badass logo for us. And, like, we started something, and then, like, we fell off. Hey, we're welcome like, to ADD we're, life. We're in a manor. Let's go up to the attic. Let's go in the basement. And then we're just like, hey, what's up? Well, today we're going to the kitchen table because, fun fact, it's my birthday episode. Woo woo! Actually, when it comes out, it will not be my birthday. Sorry about you. Close um, enough where this is enough. called it's, birthday episode. It's going to come out Friday. January 21st however my birthday is January 24th and I feel like that's fucking close enough to make this my birthday episode and unlike me Lindsay is not driving up to surprise me but she has she has excellent things planned for my birthday in her own right so I'm really jazzed to be able to shout that from the fucking rooftops eventually I mean let's be real I'll never be able to top surprising me for my birthday no uh, and, you're, and you're granny getting all kinds of sideways about you saying the word fuck hope you don't listen granny love <laughs> you we don't cuss right. out of like you know for fun we cuss because it's our second language it's a sign of high intelligence allegedly it allegedly is which is fun it's funny um you mentioned my granny and you're like hope you don't listen my memo liked our facebook page yesterday which is my other side of the family yeah, your so mom's hi, mom. So hi, Granny and Memo, if both of you are listening. We do have 
listeners in that age category. We do. And anybody that's listening at all, fucking thank you. Because, like, hey So thank and- you for listening. Anyone who listens to us, we really, truly appreciate it. By the way, we'd like some feedback. You know our Gmail. Always. Gabvpodcast at gmail.com. We expect something so we can, like, connect with you because like we desperately want friends not desperately that sounds bad but like desperately want <laughs> actually friends. a really funny story you know how we're always like who's listening to us who are these people where are you germany where'd you come from hi Turkey, you, ukraine right chile like hello i actually found out that one of my old friends who i'm facebook friends with is one of our listeners <gasps> yay and it was so so funny because uh, she had said something about hating her voice. Oh, yeah. And I was like, that's okay. I'm like, I hate my voice, too. She goes, it's so funny to me that you hate your voice and you started a podcast. And I was like, first of all, you listen to my podcast? Aww. Second of all, correction, Anna decided we should do a podcast. Yes. She just convinced me to join it. But it was, like, an amazing thing. I, I love being here. I also backhandedly told her she needed to write more and get on it and that's how lost in gray became a novel because we d- we both like bitched each other out into writing more and then we wrote a book together and we were like hey these stories are very similar they were it was kind of fun if you if you are interested in a light-hearted spooky creepy read lost in gray, right? i'm trying to not overtell Lindsay. Telling people it's lighthearted when the cover's a bloody child's shoe. <laughs> I in a bicycle. Listen, it comes mm. out within the first few chapters. A child dies. We're horrible. It's we the cover of the them. book. It's not a spoiler. It's not. All the twists and turns and creepy shit. That's where it's at. But anyway, I, I think back about Lost in Gray and I'm like, oh my God, that was like five years ago. How the fuck was that like five years ago? Four, five, I don't know. It's been 17. A- no, 16. No, I don't know. Look, listen, I'm not on Amazon right now, but it's let's go a- on Amazon. It's oh. been a smooth minute, and that blows my mind. Since then, me and Lindsay have put out another book together, which we strongly suggest anybody who supports mental illness check out. It's called Uncharted Waters. It has to do with a child's suicide. Um, if you're not here for that we support you if you are here for that if you've experienced that we also feel for you deep heartedly know what that's like me especially um, i just had the weirdest mind fuck moment oh yeah it's on topic i did get on amazon and i looked up lost in gray it is was 2017 fucked up again no hear this out as you're as you're saying this about uncharted waters there is now a new book that shows up on Amazon called Lost in Gray that was oh. released in 2018. And is I was like, by, the fuck? Is it by a certain someone that we don't speak about, like Voldemort? Uh, no. But okay. It says mental health is still something a lot of people struggle with and blah, 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 blah. So it's like. Okay, now we have to fucking read that. It, it's like, so are they our title the- for one book. <laughs> Is it lost in the gray matter of your brain? Ooh, that's intriguing. Now I gotta buy it. Probably on Audible. Shout out, sponsor us, because it's all I can fucking focus on nowadays is Audible books. Right. Um, shout out to Kim at Mainstream Boutique. I still haven't listened to the book you bought me for Christmas or read the physical copy you gave me. 
Love you deeply. I'm going to try to get it done by Friday. (laughs) So it turns out this book is about depression, specifically like postpartum depression and following, following the story. Um, it sounds like a great story, an important story to talk about wanting to end the stigma around depression, but like maybe Google your title next time. Yeah. Is it spelled the exact same way? Spelled the exact same way. G-R-E-Y. Nice. All right. It's probably an amazing book. I don't know. No, it's nothing against this author. Right. I was just shocked to see that. The fact that we Googled our asses off before we launched a podcast, created a We Google before we do anything made a book together made a second book together made our like own all on our own project book you know i themselves like no i just remembered the other day that i wrote exercising my mind yeah you did it's a great book i just remembered that the other day i was like oh no it's it's so funny because paranormal ish Lindsay's first collection falls off frequently from the bookshelf in my room i swear my room is haunted thanks you jillian and she wants to um, read my stuff she misses i know she misses you i miss her too but like it knocks that one specific book into the floor about eight times a week and i'm fucking over it oh knock your shit off bill right no you can hear me my my closet light flickers and we changed the bulbs we changed the bulbs and guess what it it never did this prior to her passing with the lights like strobing like you're at a nightclub it does it all the time now we change the bulbs same thing we went from led to regular bulbs same thing i don't give a fuck it's not the wiring it's my kids i i i mean we're a paranormal podcast so if anybody doesn't believe that what are you even doing here oh maybe it's for the true crimes yeah, we are a paranormal true crime podcast, but we have other varied interests in life, like writing and shit talking, slash venting, whatever. Um, we also really enjoyed this fabulous podcast by two wonderful individuals called Fairy Tale heard, Fix. Probably heard us mention it like a hundred times the last several episodes. I mean, yeah, because we're obsessed rightfully so and if you have any platform to listen to a podcast on which clearly you do because you're listening to us go check out fairy tale fix Lindsay, would you give us our handles uh, yes they are fairy tale fix pod on all socials and they are very active on instagram just a sidebar if that's your thing and their website is fantasticworldspod.com slash fairy dash tail dash fix dash podcast that will be in the show notes because i know that was a mouthful yes all of their all of their information will be in the show notes because we love them and we consider them our friends they they are so fantastic like phenomenal the fact that we made friends that also like varied interests that we enjoy and some of the things that we cover on our show it's just it's a great mashup it's um, also such a fun coincidence that they are also best friends. There is one blonde, one brunette. They've known each other yep. for years. Like it's all these like fun little parallels they, with our podcast. They don't live in the same area. Yeah, they they're long like, distance. They're unfortunately long distance. It's it's so crazy. Like So and, it's perfect match. I mean, they have very calm, soothing voices. Uh, like, yes, I'm they have like mind. perfect podcast voices. They're Meanwhile, like, I'm like, I apologize that you have to put up with this <laughs> to hear the words I say. <laughs> no shit. You know what's funny is 
when I hear the voice inside my head, it sounds like way more baritone. But when I speak and I hear it on the podcast, it's way more high pitched and like, oh my god, I'm a cheerleader. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Whoa. And I'm like, what now? Nothing against cheerleaders, but I've never ever tried out to be one. So the fuck? Needs to be a cheerleader. Did you? That's adorable. I could see. Then I broke my wrist um tripping at cheerleaders. Your daughter breaks her wrist from tripping. I feel that's genetic at this point. Twice. She's done it twice. No, no, she did it once and then the next time. No, the second time she got pushed. It was an accident, but yeah. It was an accident at church, but shit got wild at aftercare, like, woo! But I digress. Mine broke because they held practice in an auditorium with that real, there's an auditorium at school, but real, real thin carpet that's just over top of concrete. Why were we practicing in there? With with no padding underneath, I'm sure. Right. I don't know why we practiced in there. My family makes fun of me. They're like, you broke your wrist tripping. Like, listen, and I'm I like, a lot look, about a lot of shit. Maybe we should take it up with the school who decided that was a safe spot for me to have cheerleading practice. Right. I digress. <laughs> we we have a lot of things we could complain about, like my uh, insurance claim for my car. <sighs> anyway, life is fun. It's a soap opera I didn't audition for and I don't want to be a part of. Like, Although I enjoyed the Real Housewives of whatever the fuck. Like, you pick a season, I probably watched it. I don't mm-hmm. want to be a part of this lifestyle. I just want to have my life back. Well, Especially my car. I miss my car. It was pretty. And then the truck I'm borrowing from the, you know, rental place um, is expensive to put mm-hmm. gas in that bitch. Like, whoa! Yep. So, yeah. But... Hey, Marlena. Hey, Eric, if you're listening. I don't know that you listen, but hey, anyway. Um, Apparently a lot more people that we know listen than we know. I don't feel like anybody gives a shit about what I have to say after they see me in person because I'm so obnoxious. Love you anyway. But, you know, it's true. I'm a lot of a person. I have a lot of disorders, one of them being ADD. And that that's all that needs to be said about that. Like... <laughs> Speaking of ADD, you know that we're a podcast. We are a podcast. But I wanted to give a quick shout out to Marlena and Eric for, in the future, taking me and Alan out this coming weekend for my birthday. It's very thoughtful, (gasps) and I'm very excited to participate in that. And and on my actual birthday, me and Marlena are going to Pawhuska, Oklahoma to go see the Pioneer Woman's business. And I'm uh, fucking excited. I'm so excited. It's like, I know I'm, I have plans on that day. I'm trying. Well, um, but, fun fact, part of your plans or my plans is going to be like in a car on Zoom. So I've made it aware to Marlena that like I have shit going on, but like it shouldn't take very long. But it's also very important announcement to be made yes, very we'll very soon later. but it's a tidbit that you can just look forward to because it's so fucking exciting for so many reasons but beyond that we are going to the pioneer woman's mer- mercantile or Merc- mercantile mercantile I, was mercantile I don't fucking know oklahoma people like to pronounce shit stupid have you ever listened to me talk people <laughs> um by beyond that then we're gonna go to her restaurant and try not to spend our entire paychecks and come home. <laughs> Sounds fun. 
Yeah, so I'm really excited about that. So thank you to Marlena and Eric for being such great friends. And actually, fun fact, random, this is mine and Marlena's 20-year anniversary of being friends. Oh. Um, Come June, maybe July, whenever the youth rodeo comes into town, that's like when we first met. Okay, so what is the, what are the chances? Is your old twenty, and it's our ten, and it's our ten. Yeah, exactly. around the same month and everything. Yep, it's quite amazing how I meet excellent people. Oh, and shout out to Miss Kristen because we have been friends for, according to Facebook, four years, but it feels like a lifetime. To my sister, the best. a better Mister. Um. I love you and thank you for listening and supporting me in all the ways you do. And with that being said, I think that takes care of all of our housekeeping. So like I said, we are true crime paranormal podcast and true crime related. Did you know my birthday is special? Not because it's me. That's not why it's special. Ted Bundy makes my birthday a little more interesting to be exact. Ted Bundy was executed on January 24th of 1989 at 7 a.m. He was pronounced dead at 7.16 a.m. by Old Sparky, which is a weird name to name an electric chair, but go you. Um, but it was like the witness. <laughs> right? Like, that would be hilarious. Like, who signed it? <laughs> I was born January 24th of 1989 at... 9:29 p.m. So any of you astrology based people that know shit about witchcraft and like moon signs and like all the shit send me my chart. I don't know how to figure this shit out. Blake, do you listen? Blake, hey boy, you hey. might know that stuff. Yes, please. Somebody Let else. a bitch know cuz like I can't figure it out. I'm so ADD that I can't focus on more than like one chart at a time. So putting like six together to make a compilation of like my birth astrology shit it would be very interesting it would be cool to know it just see it, me it especially out. in comparison if it i don't know enough about astrology to know if death matters for like anything but imagine like comparing it to ted bundy's like that also yeah. can i just say kudos i i, I guess to the state of florida because i was going to say to him but i guess to the state of florida for that wonderful gift of ridding the world of him on your birthday. Amen to that. One bitch went out, one bitch came in. Sorry. I, I, Major I upgrade, though, because as you all know here at GABB, we fucking hate Ted Bundy. Absolutely. As you all should. Right. We'll get into that. Okay, so who exactly was Ted Bundy? Well, he's not Zac Efron. Let me point that out. I was going to say, they gave him a lot of credit. Woo! Let me tell you, Zac (laughs) Efron is like chef-level kisses. And uh, Ted Bundy was creepy-looking. Sorry, that's my personal opinion. I go for, like, Kevin Smith and, like, you know, Seth Green, Seth Rogen. Like, I'm a weirdo. But in no capacity do I find anything about those dead scary eyes of ted bundy i was going to say if i never knew anything about ted bundy like if somebody just showed me this random ass picture and was like isn't he hot i'd be like no Uh, no good for for you no each their own but then and then add on top of knowing who he was what he did he's not hot quit quit fucking saying that 
right? He's so gross. So Ted Bundy was a 1970s serial killer, rapist, and, interesting enough, necrophiliac. He was executed in Florida's electric chair, good old Sparky, in 1989, my birthday, January 24th to be exact, at 7 a.m. And his case has inspired many novels, films, etc., docuseries you you name it podcast like like i don't have enough time to research how much shit there is about ted bundy that's how extensively he's been covered it's it's insane it's everywhere so he i mean he's everywhere and he should be nowhere because like ew but yeah we're we'll still talking that. about him but like the <laughs> only reason is is because it's like it's coincidental that it was on my birthday so exactly yeah let's dive into ted bundy as he was pronounced at birth Theodore Robert Kroll on November 24th of 1946. He was born to Eleanor Louise Kroll, and his father has never been identified or has been confirmed. By some accounts, his birth certificate was assigned paternity to a salesman of the Air Force, an Air Force veteran to be exact, named Lloyd Marshall, although according to others, the father is listed as unknown. His mother claimed she had been seduced by a war veteran. That sounds so fucking romantic, but so creepy at the same time. Um, Family members expressed suspicion that Bundy may have been fathered by her own father, Samuel Crowell. Oh. But, but, very important, no evidence has ever been cited to support this alleged claim. Okay. It's just another like, a rumor, tidbit, rumor, creepy, creepy, ooey that makes you maybe like, an kill. attempt to get the weirdos who sensationalize and romanticize him to be like, no. Oh, poor Ted. No, not poor Ted. Fuck Ted. That's what the episode should be called is fuck Ted. I have so many episode ideas. We'll see so- what we land on. <laughs> Our first- meeting is called Ted Bundy is gross. Yeah. Our notes are called Ted Bundy is not hot. <laughs> it's everywhere. Ted Bundy is unfortunately everywhere. Um, for the first three years of his life, Ted lived in Philadelphia, home of his maternal grandparents. And they raised him as their son to avoid the social stigmatism that accompanied birth outside of wedlock. For God's sake, how dare your parents not be married? For shame. I hate that. I hate when people call children bastards. Like, it's like a whole thing. I don't like it. It's icky. It's gross. It's tacky. Stop it. I digress. Family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were his actual mother and father. And his older sister, his mother, was just that, his sister. However, the truth came to light. And... Circumstances vary on how that came to be. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate and called him a bastard. God. Which is horrible. The only time I'll probably feel sorry for Ted Bundy. Uh, he told his bio- biographer, Stephen McLeod, probably pronouncing that wrong, and Hugh Ainsworth, that he found the certificate himself. Biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule 
Anybody heard of her? No, not at all. Right. She knew Ted personally (laughs) and believed that he did not find out until 1969 when he located the original birth certificate in Vermont. Now, Ted expressed a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never telling him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true paternity and heritage all by himself. I mean, I get that, but it's a it lot to murder. That's no, it's not okay. So this makes you sound like you should feel bad for the dude. You shouldn't. I'm just saying you shouldn't. A lot of okay. backgrounds of killers sound like that because they did have horrible childhood stuff. And yeah, he said it several times. It's not an excuse to kill people. And there's probably uh, some other psychological thing. Mm-hmm. Mental illness, psychological past, abuse, etc. is no excuse to be a dick, by the way. It's no excuse to murder people. Like, go to counseling. Be normal. Damn. Normal's an understatement because nobody's normal. Everyone's weird. Weird is excellent. But, like, try to better yourself. Try to be a decent human being. Because everybody has trauma. Of some aspect. Some right. is a lot worse than others. But at the end of the day, you still shouldn't kill people. And be like, mm, but my life was bad. No one gives a fuck, Ted. Right. Well, in certain interviews, Ted Bundy spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Ann Rule that he identified, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, however, he and other family members told attorneys that Sam Crowell was a bully and a bigot, and he hated blacks, Italians, Catholic, and Jews. Um, also, what the fuck? Anyway, he allegedly beat his wife and animals in the home. He swung neighbors' cats, allegedly, by their tails. And he once threw Luis's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for overstepping overstepping what motherfucker calm down god Ugh! i don't understand. Oh, I can't see my face right now no it's so it's but so it's a little disturbed Ugh. it's so awful um he sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences which sounds paranormal to me but i don't know right And he once flew into a violent rage when questions of Ted's paternity. Um, Ted described his grandmother as timid, obedient, and she periodically went under electrotherapy for her depression, which is just horrifying and sad and just fucking atrocious. I feel so bad for that woman. One of them needed electrotherapy. Any doesn't sound like her <laughs> lobotomies, electrotherapy, uh, like any of that, like early. I was gonna say there is modern versions Ugh. of electrotherapy that is different. I don't know how different. I'm not an expert on it, but I know that it is not the way it was back then. But back then, it was a horrible thing. Yeah, and so, it mm. it's just sad when you look back on older cases and you're like. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she allegedly feared to leave their house towards the end of her life. Bundy occasionally exhibited disturbing behaviors at an early age. Go fucking figure. Yeah, Julia recalled awakening from a nap and found herself surrounded by kitchen knives and a three-year-old Ted standing by the bed smiling. If that is not nightmare fuel, I don't know what is, people. Kids are already terrifying. Yeah. Can you add in this? Right. The shit they say is just scary as it is. Adding Um, kitchen knives surrounding you. like Like you go to sleep, you wake up surrounded by knives. The fuck? It's and a three-year-old staring at you. Like, eerily smiling like a black-eyed kid. Oh. <laughs> um, anyhow, the descriptions of Ted's grandparents have been questioned in more recent investigations. Uh, Bundy, as a senior in high school, 1965. In 1950, Louise changed her name to her surname from Crowell to Nelson. And so... Eventually, she, at the urging of multiple family members, left Philadelphia with Ted to live with cousins Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. Now, in 1951, his mother met Johnny Bundy. I can't pronounce his other option name, so there's that. Um, He was a hospital cook, and she met him at an adult singles night at the First Methodist Church. They later married that year, and John, or Johnny Bundy, formerly a, he adopted Ted, which is really sweet. Johnny and Luis conceived four children of their own, although Johnny tried to include his adopted son into camping trips and other family activities. Ted remained very distant, and he later complained to a girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father and wasn't very bright and didn't make very much money. Okay, oh. asshole. How much money sounds did you like make he as a tried. teenager? Yeah, it sounds like he, it was a grown-ass man that took somebody else's responsibilities and made them his own, loved you as his own, Tried his very best, and you're still shitting on this guy. Good for you, We'll never know what happened behind closed doors, but based on the description. Ted varied his recollections of living in Tacoma over the years. Um, He described roaming his neighborhoods, picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women. Ew, yuck. But I get that, like, curiosity of a teenager going through a very influx of hormones. It's more you knowing what we know now about it's just ooey because of how he turned out. Exactly. Um, I don't ick anyone's oohs. I just think Ted's gross. He told Polly Nelson that he persuade or pursued detective magazine crime novels and true crime documentaries uh, for stories that involve sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed bodies. Hmm. Yeah. So later he told Ann Rule, however, he never read fact detective magazines and shuddered at the thought. Liar. I was about to and say. That, and that anyone, like anyone would. He told someone else he would consume large quantities of alcohol 
and canvassed the community late at night in search of unwrapped windows. I guess unlocked is what that means. I don't know. Um, have a screen. Oh, maybe like no curtains so he could see women undressing oh. or whatever else could be seen. Accounts of his social life varied. He told Mitchellod and Answorth that he chose to be alone. Oh, I'm sure he did because who would want to be his fucking friend? Um, in adolescence, because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships, he claimed he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. "Quote: I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what." underlaid societal interactions end quote that's called being a psychopath yeah exactly literally yeah and so his classmates from woodrow wilson high school told ann rule however ted bundy was well known and well liked there was a medium-sized fish in a large pond so he wasn't like the biggest baddest boy on campus but he was kind of close to it um he was an athlete he did downhill skiing he pursued um a lot of different like athletic shit like cool for you ted um he did it enthusiastically apparently using stolen equipment and forging lift tickets for his skiing activities cool story bro like, During his been high school, semi-normal, right? You could still like, couldn't. But his, remember, his stepdad or adopted dad was so poor. Like, how could they afford it? Dick face. <laughs> During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached the age of eighteen, the details of the incidents were expunged from his records. You know, customary for. Washington and many other states for minors. So let's jump into his university years. Now he graduated high school in 1965. He attended the University of Puget Sounds or UPS, which is hysterical because it's also a postal service. Anyways, for one year before transferring to the University of Washington, uh, UW, for him to study Chinese, which is kind of cool. Um, in 67, he became romantically involved with a classmate at UW who is identified by a lot of pseudonyms and a lot of Bundy biographies, Stephanie Brooks, uh, to name one. In 1968, he dropped out of college, worked a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rutherford's uh, presidential campaign and became and Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign. Sounds like he had his shit together. He didn't, guys. Fair warning. He didn't. Um, People like that are great at pretending to be normal. Exactly. So he was the um, driver and bodyguard for Fletcher's campaign during Lieutenant Governor, uh, the campaign for Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. In August, Bundy attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Shortly after, 
Brooks ended their relationships and returned to the family home in California, frustrated with what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. I feel that. <laughs> A psychologist named Dorothy Lewis would later pinpoint this crisis as probably the pivotal time in his development. So what that, in my opinion, means that's when, like, he snapped. Devastated by Brooks' rejection, Bundy traveled to Colorado and farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia, enrolling for one semester at Temple University. It was at this time in early 1969 that Ann Rule believed that Ted Bundy visited the Office of Birth Records in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage. Now, Ted was back in Washington by the fall of 1969, and he met Elizabeth Colfeifer. That's really hard to pronounce. I'm so sorry if I did that injustice. Um, identified in Bundy's literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall, a divorcee from Ogden, Utah, who worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Their very stormy relationship would continue well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Now, it's the mid-70s. Ted was focused and goal-oriented at UW. Good for Ted. Now, at this time, he was a psych major. Oh, wow, a crazy person who creates chaos and destruction being a psych major? Hmm. He was intrigued. He wanted to figure out how the mind works so he could manipulate it, it and manipulate it. Yeah. Ugh. That makes sense. So in 71, he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. There he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, a former Seattle police officer, an aspiring crime writer who would later write one of the Defining Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. I have that on Audible. Nice. I actually need to listen to it. I've only listened to like the first chapter or so. Whenever I got it, ended up going on. I got distracted, never finished it. ADD but. for the win. Um, Anne saw nothing disturbing about Ted's personality at the time. She described him as kind and empathetic. After graduating from UW in 72, he joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign, posing as a colleague, student, and he shadows Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rossellini, and recorded his stump speech speeches, and he analyzed things for Evans' team, and Evans appointed Ted Bundy as Seattle's crime prevention <laughs> adversary committee. That's funny. Um, to me, anyways. Probably not to anyone else. After Evans was reelected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis's chair. He was Ross Davis's chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Ted and described him as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. Now, in 1973, despite mediocrity in the LSAT scores, 
Bundy was accepted into law school of UPS and the University of Utah. The strength of letters of recommendations from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors was astounding. He has so many letters of recommendation, like good for Ted. He's a con artist, but whatever. So charming. So charming. So handsome. During a trip to California on a Republican Party business trip in the summer of 1973, Ted rekindled a relationship with Brooks. She marveled at the transformation of Ted into a serious, dedicated professional, seeming on the cusp of significant legal and political career. He continued to date. He continued to date um, Kelfer as well. Sorry if I butchered that name. I really do mean to try. Neither woman was aware of the other's existence. <laughs> Makes sense. In the fall of 73, Ted marticulated at USPS Law School and continued courting Brooks, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They even once talked about marriage to the point of introducing Davis as his fiance. Oh. Now we're at January of 74. He abruptly broke off all contact with her. Her phone calls and letters went unread. Finally reaching him by phone a month later, man, he ghosted the shit out of her. She demanded to know why Bundy had alienated her and ended their relationship without explanation. In a flat, calm, probably creepy voice, he replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And then hung up. And she never Gaslighting motherfucker. Right. He later oh, explained, I just wanted to prove myself that I could have married her. What an asshole. Anyhow, she's Stephanie's so much better without him. Mm-hmm. I bet dodged a bullet, realized, girl. I bet she realized she dodged a major bullet later on down the line. Um, In retrospect, Brooks said that he deliberately planned their entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for the breakup that she initiated in 1968. What a dick. Who the fuck on? Right? But, 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 some people just don't know how. Yeah. Some people don't know how to take accountability and act like fucking adults. And that's like everywhere. That's not just yeah. the serial killer. That's thing. not just killers. Yeah, that's universal. That's just like most people. And I have my faults, but when I'm wrong, I, I will openly admit to it and be like, you know what? I fucked up. I'm sorry. A lot of people can't do that, and that's really sad. Anywho, uh, Ted began skipping classes at law school, of course. And by April, he entirely stopped attending. Just like, Meep, I'm done. Yeah. And then, and then the plot thickens. Young women began disappearing in the Pacific Northwest. Now, there is no consensus on where or when Ted began killing women. He has told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics bleh, of his earliest crimes, even 
as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of the later murders in the days preceding his execution. Um, he told Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until sometime in 71 in Seattle. This is so casually. So casually. He told the psychologist, Art Norman, that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Philadelphia. He hinted but completely refused to elaborate on the homicide. Detective Robert D. Keppel uh, said he committed a murder in Seattle in 72 and another in 73 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater. Rule and Keppel both believed that he might have started killing as a teenager. And I honestly believe that as well. Absolutely. The earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27. By then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills. Let me rephrase that. He honed in on how to be a serial killer. In his own words. like that's He literally problem. studied it. He did, because he was trying to be a psychology major. Now, in the era before DNA profiling, that left minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. Shortly after midnight on January 4th of 1974, around the time that he terminated that relationship with Miss Stephanie Brooks, Ted entered the basement apartment of an 18-year-old Karen Sparks residence. Yeah. A dancer and student at UW. After bludgeoning Sparks senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the rod or a metal speculum. Paused for vomiting. Um, it's a lot. Um, he caused internal in injuries, obviously. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but survived. Go, girl. However, she had permanent physical and mental disabilities after the fact. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Ted broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Haley, Healy at UW's undergrad who broadcast morning radio weather reports for the skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans and a white blouse and boots, and carried her away. During the first half of 1974, female college students disappeared at a rate at about one per month. That's terrifying. Ah. And it's, it's, it's like, once he, in my opinion, once he started killing, he could not stop. I he, see that. Especially since he owned it and all that, yeah he, yeah. he just completely escalated. One a month? That's a lot of murder, people. So on March 12th, Donna Gale Mason, a 19-year-old student of the Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her home to attend a jazz concert on campus. But she never arrived. On April 17th, Suzanne Rancourt disappeared while on her way to the dorm after an evening's advisors meeting 
at Central Washington State College in in Ellenburg, 110 miles southeast of Seattle, two female Central Washington State students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of Rancourt's disappearing and the other three nights earlier. A man wearing an arm sling, asking for help, carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Have I always pictured it yellow? I always thought it was yellow too, but I think it's just like shitty photography, if that makes sense. Okay. Or even just where our brains go when we think classic Beetle. Yeah. So on May 6th, Roberta... Uh, Parks left her dorm in Oregon State University at Cornellis, 260 miles south of Seattle, to have coffee with some friends at the Memorial Union. But she never arrived. Now, the detectives from Kings County and Seattle Police Departments grew increasingly concerned that there was no significant physical evidence. And these missing women had very little in common apart from being young attractive white college students with long hair parted down the middle. This is why side parts are important. Side I know that parts was and skinny jeans all day. Yay. Um, that might have been an inappropriate joke. You know, we a... cope with humor. Yeah, we do. Um, now on June 1st, Brenda Ball, she was 22. She disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern uh, near Seattle, Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen in the parking lot taking, talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. Sound familiar? In the early hours of June 11th, a UW student, Georgeman Hawkins, vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. Bright lit day disappeared. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and a crime analyst combined or no, combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, but they found nothing. Bundy later told Keppel that he lured Hawkins into his car and knocked her unconscious with a crowbar. After handcuffing her, he drove her to I apologize in advance Issaquah, a suburb 20 miles east of Seattle, where he strangled her and spent the entire night with her body. <clears throat> he told Keppel that he turned, he returned to UW to the alleyway the morning after. In the midst of a major crime scene investigation, and he gathered Hawkins' earrings and one of her shoes where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot and just completely departed unobserved. Quote, It was a feat so brazen, wrote Keppel. Quote, It is astonishing. Police, even today, said. End quote. He said he revised Hawkins' corpse on three occasions. And after she, Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward reported seeing a man in an alley 
behind the nearby dormitory, and he was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that the man asked her to help him carry his case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. During this period, Ted was working in Olympia as an assistant director to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory uh, Commission, where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Kind of yeah. things pretty typical with, with killers. Like, they want to be close to see if they're being figured out. It's so sickening, though. It, very much so. He later worked for the Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search for the missing women. As a DES employee, he met and dated Carol Ann Bone, a twice-divorced mother of two who six, six years later would play in a very important role in the final phases of Ted Bundy's life. In 1968, the Volkswagen Beetle in question that we've been talking about which he committed most of his crimes in. Um, now at display at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment, reports that six missing women and this Sparks brutal beating appeared promotely in the newspaper and on television throughout Washington or and Oregon. Fear spread among the population, hitchhiking was advised to not be done by young women and it dropped sharply. Pressure mounted on law enforcement agencies, but the lack of physical evidence severely hampered their investigation. Like, it just hindered them. Police could not provide reporters with much more than little information that they had available to them for fear of compromising the investigation. Further, similarities between victims were noted. The disappearances all took place at night, usually near ongoing construction work within a week of midterms or finals, and all of the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans. At most crime scenes, there were sightings of a man wearing a cast or a sling, and he was driving a, a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. The Pacific Northwest murders uh, accumulated on July 14th, with broad daylight abductions of two women from a crowded beach at Lake Samaras Park, or State Park, in Issaquah. Five female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a light accent, perhaps Canadian or British. He introduced himself as Ted. What a dumbass, by the way. He asked People like that think they're the smartest person in the room. I know. It's so gross. He asked for their help unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. Four refused. One accompanied him as far as his car. When she saw that there was no sailboat, she fled. Additional witnesses, yeah, right, saw him approach Janice Ann Ott, 23, a probation caseworker for the King County Juvenile Court with a sailboat story and watched her leave the bench in his company. About four hours later, Denise Mary Nailsland, sorry, 
a 19-year-old woman was studying to become a computer programmer, left a picnic to go to the restroom. She never returned. Bundy told Stephen McLeod and William Hagmeyer that Ott was still alive when he returned with Naslold and that he forced one to watch as he murdered the other. But he later denied it in an interview with Lewis on the eve of his execution. Now, the King County Police finally, armed with a detailed description of their suspect, his car, etc., posted flyers throughout Seattle. A composition sketch was printed in the regional newspaper and broadcast on local television. Elizabeth Colfer and Rule and DES employee a DES employee and a UW psychology professor all recognized the profile, the sketch, and the car and reported Ted Bundy as a possible suspect. I just have to say, as a side note, how brave it is to see something like that and be like, I think I know that person and I've never known them to be anything other than kind. Something's not right and to say something. Right. That's amazing. If you see something, say something. If you feel if a something certain way, doesn't feel right in your gut, say something. It. You know. So they reported Ted as a possible suspect. However, detectives were receiving up to like two hundred plus tips a day. They thought it unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be a perpetrator. Which we know now. Right. Probably makes now, them the most likely suspect. On September 6th, two hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of Ott and Naslid near a service road in Issaquah, two miles east of Lake Samashi State Park. I am so sorry. I don't know how to say all these words. I've tried Googling them. Google gives me different things. I've, I'm trying. I am really am. Um, and ex- an extra femur and several vertebrae were found at the site and were later identified as, by Bundy, as those of Georgian Hark- Hawkins. Six months later, a forestry studies students from Green River Community College discovered skulls and animals of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy frequently hiked, just east of Issaquah. Manson's remains were never recovered. So where does that leave us? Unfortunately, we're not near the end. We are in Idaho, Utah, and Colorado now. So we've left Seattle. I wish that's where it stopped, but it doesn't. So... Roaming house in Salt Lake City, where Bundy lived from September of 74 to October of 75. Uh, He showed the fire escape where he used to sneak in his room and windows to the utility room where he concealed photo souvenirs, etc. from his murders. Ugh. Why do they always keep souvenirs? It's so gross. Anyhow. I'm um, sure there's some weird psychological. I'm sure, but it's so icky. Yeah. Uh, 
1974, Ted received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School, and he moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Tefner in Seattle. While he called her often, he dated at least a dozen other women as he studied his first year of law school. He accumulated a second time. He was devastated to find out that other students had something that he lacked, some intellectual capacity that he did not. He found the classes completely incomprehensible. It was a great disappointment to me, he said. So he feels like less of a man because other people are smarter than him. And then a new string of homicides begin in the following month. Oh, yes. Toxic. Masculine rage. Yes. Including two that would remain undiscovered until he confessed, Fundy confessed, that is, to them shortly before his execution. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho. And he either disposed of the remains immediately in the nearby river or returned the next day, photographed, and dismembered the corpse. I'm just grossed out by that. On October 2nd, he seized 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City. Her remains were buried near the Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles south of Holiday, but were never found. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midval, another Salt Lake City suburb, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her naked body was found nearby in a mountainous area nine days later. A post-mortem examination identified that she may have remained alive for up to seven days. Seven days after her disappearance. On October 31st, Laura Ann Aim also 17, disappeared 25 miles south of Lehigh after leaving a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body was found by hitchhikers nine miles to the northeast of the American Fort Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. Both women had been beaten, raped, sodomized, strangled with a nylon stocking. Now, years later, Ted described this post-mortem ritual with their corpses of Smith and Aim, including how he would shampoo their hair and he would apply makeup. Yeah. Oh. Mm. In the late afternoon of November 8th, Ted Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Durant at Fashion Palace Mall in Murray, less than a mile from the uh, Midval restaurant where Melissa Smith was last seen. He identified himself as Officer Rosalind of the Murray Police Department and told her that someone had attempted to break into her vehicle. He asked her to accompany her to the station to file a complaint. When Durant pointed out to Bundy that he was driving on a road that did not lead to the police station, he immediately pulled onto the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. During the struggle, he inadvertently fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist, and she was able to open the car door and escape. 
Later that evening, Deborah Jean Kent, a 17-year-old student in Beaumont High School in Bontfault, just 20 miles north of Murray, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school. Her brother was to pick her up. The school's drama teacher and a student told the police that a stranger had asked each of them to come to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing near their auditorium. The drama teacher spotted him again, and before the end of the play, outside of the auditorium. Uh, investigators found a key that unlocked handcuffs, removed from Carol Durant's wrist in that parking lot. In November, Elizabeth Kelfer called King County Police a second time after reading that young women were disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hergsmeyer of Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Bundy had raised considerably on their uh, list of suspicious people. But Lake Samahi, I don't know how to say this. Sorry, guys. Um, witness considered the most reliable by the detectives failed to identify him from a photo lineup. And in December, Colfer called the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was at the top of their list of suspects, but at the time, no credible forensic evidence linked him to the Utah crimes. It's so frustrating. And I know it has to do with crimes and like lack of technology like we have now. To know that tips were saying it, they believed it, and they could do nothing. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because you know they wanted to. So now we're in January of 75. Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with Kefner. Or Kelp. Kelfner, sorry. Who did not tell him that she had reported him to police on three occasions. Smart girl. She made plans to visit him in Salt Lake in August. Karen Campbell his 14th documented murder victim and subject of his first homicide incident. Documented. Yeah, documented. How fucked up is that? significant word there. In 1975, Ted shifted much of his criminal activities eastward from his base in Utah to Colorado. Now, on January 12th, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Carolyn Eileen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the wildwood inn now wildwood lodge in snowmass village 400 miles south east of salt lake city her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road outside of the resort she had been killed by blows to the head from a blunt instrument that left a distinctive, lingering, grooved impression on her skull. Her body also bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. It's just monstrous. On March 15th, 100 miles away, northeast of Snowmass, in Vail, ski instructor Julie Cunningham, 26, disappeared while walking from her apartment to a date, a date with a friend. 
Bundy later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help him carry his ski boots to his car, where he clubbed and then handcuffed her, assaulted and strangled her at a secondary site near Rifle, 90 miles west of Vail. Weeks later, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to revisit her remains, which is just so fucking gross. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, disappeared near Utah, Colorado, border and Grand Junction, which is surprising because I've actually been to Grand Junction, on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found under a vacant railroad bridge. On May 6th, Bundy lured 12-year-old, a 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho, 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. He drowned, then sexually assaulted her in his hotel room before disposing of her body, possibly north of the Pocketail. Karen Campbell disappeared while walking down this brightly way, brightly lit hallway to her hotel room in mid-May. Three of Bundy's Washington State's DES co-workers, including Carol Ann Boone, visited him in Salt Lake and Salt Lake City and stayed for a week in his apartment. Bundy subsequently spent a week in Seattle with Kelfner in early June and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Again, she made no mention of her multiple discussions with the King County Police and the Salt Lake City Sheriff's Office. Bundy disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Boone nor a concurrent romance with a Utah law student known in various accounts as Kim Andrews or Sharon Alner. No, I don't know. Hard to pronounce. I apologize. On June 28th, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, 45 miles south of the Salt Lake City area. Curtis became Bundy's last confession. Tapes recorded moments before he entered the execution chamber. Uh, the bodies of Wilcox, Kent Cunningham, Oliverson, Culver, and Curtis, they were never recovered. In September of 1975, he was baptized, because he's a godly man, apparently. Into the he did work in a church for a while, didn't he? Yeah, into the Church of Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although he was not an active participant in services, and he ignored most of the church's restrictions, he would later become ex- excommunicated by the LDS Church. In 1976, when he uh, was convicted for kidnapping. When asked about his religious preference after his arrest, Bundy answered Methodist, the religion of his childhood. In Washington State, investigators were still struggling to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that had abruptly, just as it had began. An effort to make sense of the overwhelming mass of data they had restored to then investigate a strategy of compiling a database. 
the Kings County payroll computer is what they use a quote huge primitive machine by contemporary standards but the only available um, computer for use at their time after inputting the many lists they had um, compiled classmates acquaintances of each victims of Volkswagen owners names Ted also known sex offenders and so on they queried the computer for coincidences out of thousands of names 26 turned up on that list one was Ted Bundy so out of 26 names Ted Bundy was one of them and that's just wild considering how archaic it seems those computers were at this age um detectives also manually compiled a list of the 100 best suspects Bundy was on that list as well and he was quote literally at the top of the pile of suspects of course yep when word came from the utah uh area of his arrest items found in his volkswagen in 1975 um he was arrested in by utah highway patrol officer bob hayward in granger another salt lake city suburb Hayward observed Bundy cruising at a resident in a residential area in the pre-dawn hours, and he was at a speed considered a fleeing high speed. After seeing the patrol car, he noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats, and that. And then he searched the car. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing. And then he found the handcuffs in a dumpster. But literally why he started skiing all the time was to have an excuse to have a ski mask? Probably. And, you know, the rest were just household items. However, the detective, Jerry Thompson, remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durant kidnapping and Bundy's name for, from Kefner's December 1974 phone call. In search of Bundy's apartment, the police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with check marks by the Willwood Inn, a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful and where Deborah Kent had disappeared. The police did not have sufficient evidence to detain him however he was released on his own recognizance i hate it when they do that he later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of polaroids he had had of his victims which he destroyed after he was released Uh, place salt lake city police bundy on a 24-hour surveillance and thompson flew to seattle with two other detectives to interview keffler who told them that In the years prior to his move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she couldn't understand in her home and in Bundy's apartment. These items included crutches, bags of plaster of parrots that he was going to ask where he got the casts that he admitted that he stole from a medical supply house and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Um, Other objects included surgical gloves, a 
oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove box, a sack of women's clothing. He was um, in a lot of debt, and she suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo that he had, he warned her, quote, if you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. Wow. Yeah. She said Bundy became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted down the middle. And I bet it was brown too, huh? Probably. Wouldn't surprise me none. When she would sometimes awake in the middle of the night, she would find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. Oh. He kept a lug wrench taped halfway up the hand in the trunk of his car. Another Volkswagen Beetle, which he often borrowed for protection. Makes no sense. The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Kelfner on any of the nights during the Pacific Northwest victims' vanishings, nor the day Ott or Noslud were abducted. Shortly thereafter, uh, Kelfner was interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney and learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks and her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas of 73. In 75, Ted Bundy had a mug shot. He, in September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midville teenager. All police impounded it, and the FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Carol Campbell's body. Later, they also identified strands microscopically um, from Melissa Smith, Carol Durant, the FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims had never met one who had never met one another to be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. On October 2nd... Yeah, coincidence. Um, On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durant immediately identified him as Officer Rosalind, a witness from a Bountiful, from Bountiful, recognized him as a stranger at the high school auditorium. There was insufficient evidence to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found. But there were more than enough uh, evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault on Durant. So he was freed on $15,000 bail paid by his parents. Spent most of the time between um, indictment and trial in Seattle, living with Kepner in her house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. When Ted and I stepped out onto the porch to go somewhere, Kepner wrote, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500, end quote. In November, three principal... Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. Now, the officials left the meeting, later known as the Aspen Summit, 
uh, convinced that Bundy was, in fact, the murderer they sought after. They agreed that he had more hard evidence against him than would ever be needed to be charged for any of the murders. In February of 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durange kidnapping on the evidence of, or on the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell. Bundy waived his right to a jury due to the negative public surroundings of the case. A four-day bench trial, a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, roadmap, airline schedules, and a social security card and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month in Colorado, authorities charged him with Carolyn Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 77. So this motherfucker is ballsy enough to do all this shit, but then we get into the escapes. Yeah, you heard me. He escaped. Pitkin County people Courthouse. People like that are smarter than everybody else. Kind of he was, though, which is what's fucking terrifying. Because he outsmarted so many people, it's ridiculous. Outsmarted or just manipulated? Both. But it's still, like, it's huh? it's impressive in a scary way. Right. Get that? Pitkin County Courthouse, where Bundy jumped from the second window of the, uh, from the left in the second story to escape. So on June 7th of 1977, he was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. And he elected to serve as his own attorney because he's so fucking cocky. And as such, he was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or shackles on his legs. During recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window, jumped to the ground from the second-story window, injuring his right ankle as he landed. I mean, good. I'm glad he got hurt. After uh, shedding an hour later of clothing, he walked through Aspen's roadblocks that were being set up uh, to the outskirts of town, then he hitchhiked southward um, onto Aspen Mountain. Near the summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, the cabin is he left the cabin, continued south towards Crest Butte, which I've also been to, and then he became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. Now, on June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Mar Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food, a parka, and instead of continuing southward, he walked back north to Aspen, eluding the roadblocks and search parties along the way. Smart motherfucker. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen's golf course, um, cold and sleep deprived and in a, in a constant pain from his sprained ankle poor Ted he drove back to Aspen where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of the lane and pulled him over he had been a fugitive for six days 
In the car were maps of the mountain surrounding Aspen that uh, persecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Carol Campbell's body. His own attorney, Bundy, had rights of discovery. So he had their own information because he decided he was going to be his own fucking lawyer, which is in, in cocky. Um, it indicated that the escape was not a spontaneous act, but that he had planned it. In 77, photography taken shortly after the first escape and uh, recaptured from Bundy's FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitives poster. Then he was back in Glenwood Jail. He ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. Because why not listen? He's so smart. In case... Um, in the case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pre-trial monitors consistently resolved in his favor and a significant bit of evidence was ruled inadmissible. A more rational defense may have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and beating the murder charge in Colorado would have dissuaded other prosecutors with as little as a year and a half to serve for Durant's conviction, had Ted preserved or persevered, he could have been free, a free man. But instead, he was cocky. He assembled a new escape plan. He acquired and detailed the floor plan of the jail, a hacksaw blade from other inmates, and accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in over a six-month period. Where did an inmate get a hacksaw blade? I don't even know how. Like, it's scary what. Oh, people you know, just casually. Clothing. He got a he got a blade from another. Right, just so casually. Okay. Um, he acquired five hundred dollars in cash, smuggled in over a six month period. He later said by visitor Carol Ann Boone in particular. During the evenings, while the other prisoners were showering, he saw the hole about one square foot between still reinforced bars in the ceiling and having lost 35 pounds was able to wiggle through the crawl space above. If that's not a reason to diet, I don't know what is. So in the weeks <laughs> that followed, he made a series of practice runs exploring the space, multiple uh, reports from information or an informant of movement within the ceiling during the night, but they weren't investigated. In 77, Bundy's impending trial had become a big thing in the small town of Aspen. And Bundy filed for a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December, 21st, December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. Good for them. The night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files into his bed, covering them with a blanket to simulate him sleeping. He climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling of, into the apartment of the chief jailer who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, and walked out the front door to freedom. He stole a car, drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car he stole soon broke down in the mountains on the interstate of I-70. How's the universe trying to stop him? Right. 
A passing motorist gave him a ride in the Vale, six miles east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver. He boarded a morning flight to Chicago. In Glenwood Springs, the, jailer, the jail's skeleton crew did not discover the escapee until noon on December 31st. More than 17 hours later, by then until he was noon? in Chicago. Yep, 17 hours. By then he was in Chicago. Yep. So then, from Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta. He boarded a bus, went to Tallahassee. The morning of January 8th, he stayed for one night in the Holiday Inn before he rented a room under an alias, Chris Hagen, at a boarding house near the Florida State University, FSU. And he said that he initially resorted to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity, knowing he would probably remain a free man, undetected in Florida, unidentified, as long as he did not attract the attention of the police. This is Florida. Right, it's Florida. <laughs> but his loan job application, and it was at a construction site, had to be abandoned when he was asked to produce identification. He reverted to his old habits of shoplifting, stealing money and credit cards from women's wallets, left in shopping carts at local groceries. In the early hours of January 15th of 78, one week after his arrival in Tallahassee, he entered FSU's Chi Omega sorority house <sighs> through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. About 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak wood firewood as she slept. Then he garnered her with a nylon stocking. He entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, <clears throat> bit deeply into her left buttocks, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In the adjoining room, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder, and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner attributed her survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior room and frightening away the attacker, a.k.a. Ted Bundy. Bundy escaped, but not being before being seen by sorority sister Nita Neary, who came through the back door and saw Bundy as he was exiting the sorority house. Tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes within earshot of 30 witnesses who heard nothing. Well, this After point, leaving, he gives no more fucks. He's well oh, practiced. Yeah, he's, well, I mean, I could work a, you know, a regular job, but they want me to produce my identity so let's just go murder more people that sounds logical Reasonable. bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked the fsu student cheryl thomas dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places she was left with permanent deafness equilibrium damage and it ended her dance career on thomas's bed police found a semen sample on a pantyhose mask containing two hairs similar to Bundy's in class and characteristics. Lisa Livia and Margaret Bo Bowman, two of Bundy's victims on February 8th, 
Bundy drove 150 miles to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. And in the parking lot, he approached a fucking 14-year-old, a 14-year-old named Leslie Parmenter, the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department Chief of Detectives, identifying him, identifying himself as Richard Burton Fire Department, but retreated when Paramount's daughter, or no, Paramount's older brother arrived and challenged him. And that afternoon, he backtracked 60 miles to Lake City at Lake City Junior High. Following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly uh, Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher, retrieved and forgotten purse. She never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near Schwarney River State Park, 35 miles northeast of Salt Lake. She appeared to have been raped, then killed by um, lacerations with a knife on February 12th. With insufficiency to his cash flow, his overdue rent, and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him, he stole a car and fled to Tallahassee, driving westward across the Florida Panhandle. And three days later, at around 1 a.m., he stopped at Pensacola. He was stopped by a Pensacola police officer, David Lee, near the Alabama state line after a want and warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. What is with him and his Volkswagens, man? So when he was, right, diehard fan. So when he was under arrest, Bundy kicked out uh, the officer's legs from underneath him and took off running. Lee fired two warning shots, then gave him a chase and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the offer Sir finally uh, subdued and arrested Ted Bundy. The stolen vehicle, they found three sets of IDs belonging to three females from FSU who were students, 21 stolen credit cards, a stolen television. They found dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses, a pair of plaid slacks, later identifies as the disguise worn by Richard Burton, the fire department guy. In Jacksonville, as Lee transported his his suspect, unaware that he was arresting FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive, Ted Bundy, he heard him say, Bundy, that is, I wish you had killed me. So, they're in Miami in 1979, preliminary hearing. Following a change of venue, Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults. In 1979, the trial was covered by 250 reports, or reporters, sorry, from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. That's, that's kind of huge. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own legal defense. From the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusions. Nelson later wrote, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible dissonance, and all that mattered to him, apparently, was that he was to be in charge. According to Mike Moreva of Tallahassee Public Defender, a member of the defense team and a pre-trial plea bargain was negotiated, which Bundy pled guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, Leach, 
in exchange for 75, uh, a firm 75 years in prison. Persecutors were, you know, not happy, uh, but it, it is what it is. In one account, the prospects of losing at a trial were very good. So they weren't happy, but they thought they might lose the case, so it is what it is. Bundy, on the other hand, saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding death penalty, but also a tactical move, because he's a dick. <laughs> he could enter his plea and then wait a few years um, for the evidence to disintegrate or become lost, and for witnesses to die, move on, retract their testimonies, etc. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he then would file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. Quote, it made him realize he was going to have to stand in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. Minerva said he just couldn't do it. Orthodontist Richard Silverman explained that the bite mark uh, evidence at the Chai Omega trial was a crucial testimony for the sorority member Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the uh, vicinity of her house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house, clutching under the clutching the oak murder weapon. Um, it says incriminating physical evidence, including impressions of the bite mark wound Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttocks. Uh, forensic orthodontist Richard Sullivan and Lowell Levine matched castings of his teeth, Ted Bundy's teeth, to that of the bite mark. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on June 24, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assault on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. The trial judge, Edward uh, Cowart, imposed the death sentence for the murder conviction. Six months later, a trial took place in Orlando for the abductions and murders of Kimberly Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again, and after less than eight hours of deliberation, due to the principal testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard to a stolen van, important material evidence, including fibers, an unusual manufacturer error found in the van on Leach's body were matching fibers from the jacket and Bundy was wearing, and he was arrested. During the penalty phase of the trial, Ted took advantage of, of the obscure Florida law, providing a marriage declaration in court. So in the presence of a judge, he was legally married to Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, testifying on his behalf during both trials and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't think I ever knew that. That's fucked up. Yeah, he asked her to marry him, and she accepted. Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. On February 10th, 1980, he was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As sentenced and announced, he was re he reportedly stood and shouted, tell the jury they were wrong. Well, they weren't. This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out by nine years. In 81, Boone gave birth to their daughter, named Bundy, as the father. <laughs> Conjugal visits, I guess. Yeah, I don't think I ever knew that. Yep, conjugal visits were allowed at Rayford Prison. Inmates were known to pull their money in order to bribe guards to allow their one-on-one -on -one time with their female visitors. Shortly after the confessions, um, Bundy 
initiated a series of interviews and I mean it's just it goes on and on for time's sake just know there's a lot the stigma of confessions he began for the first time to divulge the details of his crime through the process the he recounted his career as a thief he confirmed uh, Kelfner's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance that he owned. The big payoff for me, he said, was actually possessing whatever it is I wanted I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I wanted and got uh, gone out and taken it. That's fucked up. At first, he killed his victims as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught, but later murder became part of the adventure the ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life and then the physical possession of the remains. Bundy also confined in Special Agent William Hangmeyer, the FBI Behavioral Analysis Units. Um, he said he was struck by the deep, almost magical satisfaction that Bundy took in murder. He said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes a passion. There are... They are a part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one, and the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred, and you will always be drawn back to them. Bundy told Hegmeyer that he considered himself to be an amateur and an impulse killer in his early years before moving to what he termed as his prime or predator phase about the time of Lydia Lydia. Healy's murder in 74. This implied that he began killing well before 1974, although it was never explicitly admitted or done so. So, like we know, he's like in jail, blah, blah, blah. He's going on and doing all these interviews to try to glain, like, gain notoriety and clout for better explanation. Less than 15 hours before his scheduled July 2nd execution, uh, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stayed and identified the remains of Chai Omega case for review on multiple technicalities, including Bundy's mental capacity to stand trial and the uh, enormous instruction by the trial judge during the penalty phase requiring the judge to break a 6-6 tie between life imprisonment and death penalty, which ultimately was never resolved. The new date became November 18th. And then... On November 17th, they had another kerfuffle. And within hours of the final date, which became January 24th of 1989, um, Bundy's journey through the appeals court had been unusually rapid for a capital murder case. Contrary to popular relief, the courts moved Bundy as fast as they could. Even the prosecutors accounted Prosecutors acknowledged that Bundy's lawyers never employed delaying tactics, though people everywhere seethed at the apparent delay in execution. Ted Bundy was actually on the fast track. With all appeal adventures exhausted, with no further motivation to deny his crimes, Bundy agreed to speak frankly to investigators. He confessed to Keppel that he had committed all eight of the Washington and Oregon homicides for which he was the prime suspect. He described three additional previously unknown victims in the Washington and two in Oregon, whom he declined, declined to identify, if indeed he ever knew their identities to begin with. He said he left a fifth corpse, Donna Masson's, 
on Taylor Mountain, but incinerated her body in Kepler's fireplace. Of all the things I did to Kepler, he told Keppel, this is probably one of the least likely to be forgiven. Poor Liz. He described um, the Issaquah crime scene where the bones of Ott and Noslid and Hawkins were found and he said to Keppel, like, he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time. Nelson's impressions were similar. He said that the absolute misogyny of his crimes stunned me, she wrote. His manifested rage against women, he had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the detail and his murders were his life's accomplishments. Bundy confessed to detectives from Idaho, Utah, and Colorado that he committed numerous additional homicides, including several that were unknown to the police. He explained that when he was in Utah, he could bring his victims back to his apartment, where he could reenact scenarios dis- depicted on the covers of detective magazines. There are other buried remains in Colorado, he admitted. Um, Ted's bones for time schemes severed only to de- deepen the resolve for the authorities to see him executed on schedule. Um, he did give details, but nothing was found on certain things that he divulged. Um, when it became clear that no further stays would be forthcoming from the court, Bundy supporters began lob- lobbying for the only remaining option of execution, which would be clemency, um, that was obviously denied. And the families, Diana Weiner, a young Florida attorney, and Bundy's last uh, reported love interest, asked the families of several Colorado and Utah victims to petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez for a postponement to give Bundy time to reveal more information. They all refused. The families have already believed that the victims were dead and that Ted had killed them, Nelson wrote. They didn't need his confession. Martinez made it clear that he would agree to no further case uh, delays and that they were going to have, they were not going to manipulate the system any further for it to be negotiating for his life to be over the bodies of victims is despicable. So, They tried and tried and tried, and nobody could get a stay of execution. So Bundy was executed in the Railford electric chair at 7 o'clock, and he was pronounced dead at 7.16-ish on January 24th of 1989. His last words were, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends, referring to his attorney, Jim Coleman, and Methodist minister, Fred Lawrence. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as his execution was carried out. Then they cheered as um, a white hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes were scared at a, scared, scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will. And that is the awful case of Ted Bundy, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, that was so fucking lengthy, but God, he is a monster. Wait, wait, wait. About 12 hours later, and you were...
And then about 12 hours later, I was born. So there's that. But yeah, so that's how me and Ted Bundy have a weird correlation in life. He was executed a few hours before I was actually born. So there's Like I said, the universe decided uh, it needed something to make up for him. (laughs) Right? I'm just saying, like, I... I tried to give as much detail as possible, but there are people who do entire series of podcasts, like seasons dedicated to one thing, and that is Ted Bundy. So I feel like I didn't do it justice, and I feel bad for that. Um, I don't think anybody needs to do Ted Bundy justice. I know what you mean. But I know I what you mean. I know you mean the victims. topic. Yeah, but for his victims, I feel like I didn't go into enough detail. But I also don't... I mean, there, there's not enough time to give, God, however many people he murdered a, a right. platform. Like like I said, some people do entire podcasts just based around Ted Bundy. I will say, because obviously I'm not covering a separate topic, today, uh, I will say in regards to his victims, uh, Kathy Kleiner just tweeted the other day. I saw Sarah Turney retweeted it, and um, she tweeted on the 44th anniversary of the attack of the Chi Omega home. Uh, she took a book deal, I can't remember with what publishing house, um, for a memoir called A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. So that's exciting. Oh, that, that sounds very interesting. That puts, uh, yeah, puts some her, that's very good light exciting. on, yeah, puts some good light on somebody that he harmed versus his punk ass. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, guys, that's the correlation of my birthday and Ted Bundy's execution and our case for this week. And unless Lindsay has something else to add. I don't really have anything else to add. We're about at our time limit. Um, Other than, of course, happy birthday. And I will say, one, for our listeners, You're looking out on our social media for something coming out on our next episode. It's going to be big. B-A-B-B podcast everywhere. And two, stick around after the show for a special surprise. And that goes for you too, Anna. Ooh, I'm excited. Um, But yeah, like, I just want to touch one more time. Zac Efron is hot. Ted Bundy is not. I could go on forever. And one day I will. Yeah, he's an excellent actor. But they picked somebody so fascinatingly gorgeous who happens to be talented to play somebody that is described as being charismatic and charming and sexy. Fuck that. He's not sexy. I don't care how many fucking fangirls he had. Ugh. It's we a don't whole thing. romanticize killers on this show. Exactly. And, like, one day I am going to do, like, a whole episode talking about the sensationalism of true crime, the romanticization of it, and ethics in true crime. Absolutely. That's a big topic. But in general, Ted Bundy and every other serial killer and murderer and rapist and any other type of criminal, pieces of shit, period. Oh, and by the way, if you go on the stand and defend somebody that you know is guilty, you're just as horrible as they are. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And on that depressing note... Happy birthday to me and our um, one year anniversary. We have something big planned and we're trying to get it all organized. So stay tuned for St. Patrick's Day. We 
plan to release something epic for you guys. And our next episode will come out on February 4th, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be pretty fucking epic, too. Um, if you haven't noticed an uh, increase in the epicness lately, it's pretty great. So <laughs> stay tuned for more wild rides and true crimes and spooky tours of the unknown. And with that, we say, till next time, stay spooky, listeners. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Stefan. And this is Josh. Co-hosts of Fearscape Paranormal, as well as producers of the Fearscape Media Network. We just wanted to take an opportunity to wish a very, very happy birthday to one of our favorite hosts of all time, uh, Anna from Ghosts in the Attic, Bodies in the Basement. Happy birthday. Happy, 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 happy birthday. Uh, yes. Happy birthday, Anna. We love you guys so much. Uh, but since it's your day, we love you the most. most yes. yeah. Happy birthday from the spookiest dudes, you know, and uh, I guess we'll see you on the next year. I want to wish a very happy birthday to one half of my favorite podcast team, Anna. I hope you have a great birthday and you deserve the best. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Anna. From Dustin and Kelsey in Texas. Happy birthday, Anna. Very grateful to know you and even more grateful to count you as one of my bonus daughters. Hope you have a great day. Happy birthday, Anna. I'm so grateful for you and so happy that my sister has you as such a good best friend. My family loves you so much and you are amazing and beautiful and I hope you have a great birthday. Happy birthday. Anna, just want to tell you, hope you have a great birthday. Happy birthday. What's up, Serial Killer? Happy birthday. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, dear April. Happy birthday, dear April. Me and Gentry love you and hope you have the best day ever. Get to relax. I just want to say happy birthday to my very best friend. Anna, I have known you since we were 15. And I've been there for me ways than one. This past year has been really hard. And you don't deserve any of it. But this year, I hope that we can all start looking up again. Starting with your birthday. Misty, I grilled and love you so much. You are a great friend and a great person. And I hope that your birthday is full of everything you've ever dreamed. Birthday sister, love you. Happy birthday, Anna. I'm so impressed with everything you've accomplished the past year. With work, the podcast, writing, just everything. Even with how difficult this year has been, you've been so resilient and strong and amazing. I wish you the best birthday and just keep being the awesome person that you are. Love you. And uh, I wasn't kidding earlier when I said that I'll never be able to top you surprising me on my birthday last year. You saw me desperately wanting something without the guest list available. And the fact that you drove all the way here and surprised me like that just shows what an amazing, caring person you are. I wish more than anything I could hop in my car this weekend and pay that back to you. Now I'm kind of stuck in my town. So instead, I gathered these little clips from some people who care deeply about you. Listeners, our amazing network family, loved ones, all to declare in front of all of our listeners across 41 states in the U.S. and the 20 countries all over the world how much we love you. 
last year has been beyond difficult for all of us. And I think everyone who's listened for a while would agree that you have been through more than anyone should. While 2021 was utter shit, good things came out of it. And I truly believe that this podcast was probably one of the best things that could have possibly come out of any year, especially 2021. I know that I joke a lot about how you're the one who wanted a podcast and you talked me into it. I truly love this podcast and this little community we're growing from it, our network and our listeners and everything. And more importantly, I love that I get to just talk to you. I'm glad to have you as a co-host and my very best friend, soul sister, and extension of myself. I hope you have the happiest of birthdays. You deserve the best. All right, listeners, thanks for sticking around for that special surprise for Anna. Uh, wish her a happy birthday at all of our socials. GABB podcast on everything. And since we forgot to mention in the show, um, we have a new merch store. The link is in the show notes, so make sure you go check that out. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Ghosts in the Attic's Bodies in the Basement, a Fearscape Media podcast. Music by Stephen Temperley. Artwork by Laura Ramsey. Find us online at fearscapemedia.com forward slash GABB podcast or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at GABB podcast or email us GABB podcast at gmail.com. Thank you.